This is episode number 205 with Moonjal Shah of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I'm your host coming to you live from hometown, homegrown Melbourne, Australia. I'm also the CEO of Founder Magazine. So guys, what's been happening? I hope you're doing well. Oh my God, I am just working back to back. Uh, We're going for a hiring spree at the moment, so lots happening, but really exciting. Um, This quarter has probably been the best quarter of the year at Founder. I think I told you guys in some other episodes that um, we're going through some great growth at the moment and just comes back to focus, stripping things back and doing these quarterly strategy days um, and using a KPI dashboard, uh, using the scaling up method from Vern Harnish. I should probably try getting him on the show, but using the traffic light reporting. But anyways, um, I'm not going to ramble too much, but I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to share your earbuds with me. If you do have any friends that uh, you think might get value from this podcast, please do let them know. We're on a mission to build the largest household name entrepreneurial brand that serves tens of millions of founders around the world every single week. So let's talk about today's guest. His name's Munjal Shah, and he's the founder of a company called Health IQ. And uh, he has a fascinating story where basically... Uh, something happened to him. I'm not going to share what, and uh, that really shaped what he's building right now. And I think, you know, some of the most successful founders uh, that I've met, they become so obsessed with the problem they're solving, and they become so passionate about that problem. But you can't find that problem or that or that you know, I guess, passion straight away sometimes. So, Munjal's an insanely smart guy. You're going to learn a ton from him around growth and hiring, everything startups. I'm just going to leave it at that. He's got a fascinating story. But 
you know, easy. I, I even got an idea around lead gen that we're going to use for founder. But anyways, guys, that's it from me. I hope you're enjoying the show. If you are, please do leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening. This helps us big time. Uh, and please share this with your friends. Make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. All right, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. The first uh, question I ask everyone that comes on is, uh, how did you get your job? <laughs> how did I get my job? So, you know, sometimes in life, people always say, go find your mission. And I would say my mission found me. Um, I was running a 10K race uh, after I sold my last company to Google. Uh, I ended up with chest pains and ended up in the ER. This race was literally the next day after we sold the company. Um, and, you know, I didn't end up being a heart attack, but my father had had his first heart attack in his mid forties and I was 37 at the time. And I ended up, um, just realizing that my next, you know, I, I can change my health, lost 40 pounds from that wake up call, but realized that, you know, I really found this interesting and I really wanted to have my next startup be something that would improve the world's health. And so I always say kind of my, this, this job found me. I was just running a race one day. Yeah, wow, that's an incredible story, man. That's very powerful. Um, like that that uh due to your health, um, something happened and uh, you know, here we are. So can you tell us around like was the the company that you sold to Google, can you tell us around that and, and was that your first company or you said you've been a serial entrepreneur your whole life or pretty much <laughs> most of my adult life. So um you know, I started my my first company in 1999. Uh, went through hell and back. Honestly, we grew the company to 200 people. I had to lay off everybody but 20 people. We eventually grew it back up to 200 people with 180 in in Bangalore, uh, riding the outsourcing wave of the early 2000s, and um, and then through kind of a complicated exit, eventually sold it to Alibaba. And then my second company was Like.com, and um, that was a company that we pivoted and completely changed kind of its focus from its initial uh, area to a different area and then sold that to Google. Um, and so, yeah, I've always been a serial entrepreneur. You know, my prior two companies were more e-commerce focused, and I would say were just because I thought they were interesting, good businesses and areas I was interested in versus this one is is kind of... I can see this one being my life's work. I can see working on this for the next 10 to 20 years. So it's it's got a little different flavor than the other ones. Yeah, wow, interesting. So um one thing that shouted out to me was was that um you know you you built the your first company. What was it called? What did it do? Um uh just just out of curiosity and you said you had to lay off 180 people basically. Um I'm really curious around that. So it was a company called Ondelay and it built uh, tools for power sellers on eBay and these kind of other online marketplaces. And we built the first kind of automation tools that helped you manage your inventory and keep track of your customers and sending emails and keep track of, you know, um, uh, automate listing your items back on the market if they didn't sell and things like that. And, uh, you know, built that company kind of in, in the first internet wave. Um, and, you know, honestly, it was really a great lesson, mostly in what not to do. <laughs> it was a lesson in what to do, um, but just learned how to build a company, learned how to grow one, learned how to build a team, learned how to 
eventually get it to kind of profitability. Um, but just through through a lot of hard work and and honestly a lot of pain and suffering <laughs> over a five year period. And so that was that was my very first company. I started that I think when I was twenty six, and uh, and and, you know, and then we eventually sold that. And then I I'm almost immediately jumped into starting Like.com right after that. Hmm. And how come you had to how come you had to lay off that many people? Was it during the the the, the dot com boom? Uh, because that was basically the dot com bust shortly thereafter. <laughs> so it was uh, two thousand one, two thousand two, uh, kind of that time frame. Um, you know, when there was no more funding, you couldn't get any more, and if you weren't profitable, you needed to get profitable very fast. And so uh, we. You know, many of the lessons I learned there are things that I continue to use today, which we can talk about. It's kind of how to build a company and how to scale a company. But, um, you know, that was that was a formative period in kind of how I think about building and growing companies. Yeah. Well, so, well, let's um, let's let's kind of talk about health IQ and how this has started. And then, yeah, if, if you could talk about some of those lessons that you've learned, I think uh, that would be really valuable and how you how you how scaling this company as well. Yeah, so Health IQ's focus is to really provide cheaper insurance for health conscious people. So we have this very upside down idea that, you know, after I changed my own health, I realized, you know what, I want to get the world healthier, but the way everybody's going about it is wrong. They're kind of harassing the people who don't care about their health and hoping they can convince them to care. And I said, what if instead you just celebrate the people who do care and use this kind of aspirational positive paradigm to to kind of inspire others? And that's what we did. And we said, well, the way we want to celebrate them is with cheaper rates in, in life insurance, which is where we're focused at today. But in the future, we'll also be rolling that out for health insurance and, and disability and, uh, and other forms of uh, insurance. But, um, you know, the, the basis of the company is really this idea that, that there's this group that really takes care of their health well and as a result, deserves to be charged less the same way good drivers deserve to be charged less, um, you know, in auto insurance. And so that's the very simple premise for the company. We ended up starting it kind of backwards. So I did not plan to set out to build an insurance company. Um, after my um, uh, health crisis, I said, you know what, I just want to build a way to celebrate the people who take care of their health, the health conscious, not even just the healthy because you can be lucky and be healthy and you can be unlucky and be unhealthy, but just the part of health everybody controls, which is kind of how much responsibility have you taken, kind of your, your level of health consciousness. And we found there was no way to do that. Um, There's no way to measure it. Nobody had built kind of a FICO score for health consciousness. And so we built the first quiz. We wrote 30,000 questions. We found the 3,000 questions that mattered the most, and we got millions of people to take the health IQ test, as we called it. And then what we found was the people who scored well actually had a lower mortality rate, had a lower what's called morbidity rate or basically a number of kind of hospitalizations they had. And that just being health conscious alone seemed to make, you know, kind of result in better outcomes. Um, And now one could argue correlation causation. Maybe all the health conscious people were naturally the people who did other great things. Yeah, you don't always know. in insurance, though, you don't really care. It doesn't matter why the vegans might die less. If they die less, they should get a lower rate. Maybe it's because they're vegan. Maybe it's because they clean their house with less toxic cleaners. Maybe it's because they meditate. You don't know exactly mm. the connection of what's causing what, but you do know that they die less, and so they should get a lower rate. 
So we built the company basically using, so that quiz effectively became the big data. Like yes. Health IQ at its core is really a big data company. It, it, it looks like an insurance company. It looks like a company focused on kind of digital health, but really at its core, it's a, it's a big data company that happened to build this data set that mathematically shows and proves that health conscious people um, you know, have a lower mortality and then uses that to give them lower rates using you know, what's called an actuarial model, um, which is basically a risk model. And so that's what we did. We stumbled into by accident. So we, we built that quiz, millions took it. We waited two years, three years, while we were trying to figure out what the business model was behind the, the company. We were like seven people in a room for two years, just kind of like, oh, well, what are we gonna do with this? <laughs> we got a lot of people who took this, but how is this a business exactly? And how do we make the world's health get better? And and then one day we stumbled in and realized, oh wait, we could really use this to to create the mathematical framework for lower rates and use that to save people money. And saving money on insurance is something people like, and especially because it's something they did. So, and in turn, obviously, encourage more people to be health conscious. Exactly. Um, so uh, that's exactly right. You know, this is the aspirational element of the company, which is, look, if we celebrate the health conscious as heroes, you know, maybe that will make more health conscious. In fact, maybe that will be more effective than making somebody feel bad about themselves and saying, you know, you should really get off the couch and take care of your health. Otherwise, something could happen to you. I mean, you know, that's that's seems like it can be effective short term but if you look at the data 99% of the time that person's back on the couch within 6 months and we just think it's it's uh, the world is probably a better place if we try the other approach hmm so tell me you said um, one thing that strikes out to me is you said you got millions of people to take it in 2 years were you bootstrapped at this point because uh you've you're now backed uh, you've raised. Uh, I, I'm told um, that you guys have raised, you know, over 80 million in VC funding. You have some great, you know, investors like Andreessen Horowitz. Back then, did you like? How did you get millions of people to take the quiz? Was that through? So we had raised or? an initial seed of five million dollars. So three million equity and two million debt right out of the gate. So this was this was an advantage of having sold the last company. It did make that initial funding a little easier. Um, where there were some folks who had, you know, honestly made made money with us before and and were willing to kind of give us a shot, um, even though things were were not fully defined yet. And so, you know, when you play the game a second time or third time, <laughs> you don't always start at the same place. <laughs> you get you get a little bit of an advantage. Um, uh, but you know that only really works for one round. Like if you don't have a business after that you're not going to get the second round of financing based upon your track record. Like they're going to look at the business and they're going to look at how well it's doing. And that's exactly what happened in the second round. You know, they were like, Oh, well, you know, have you figured this out? Like, what's the business? How are you going to make money? Like, is there a business model here? And, um, you know, they're like, well, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, what, what you've done before. If you don't have those answers, you're not going to get the next round of financing. But fortunately by then we had figured out, um, how to convert really this this data into a a uh, product around cheaper insurance? Mm, I see. And um, when it when it comes to the to, to getting those millions of customers, did you just use PPC, paid acquisition? Uh, 
No, um, very little search. We actually used mostly display advertising. We oh, ran ads all over the internet that just said, hey, come get your health IQ. Gotcha. You should know your health IQ. Like, you know your FICO score. How come you don't know your health IQ? Like, it's more important in many ways. You know, your your health is a very important part of, of living a great life. And so lots of people were like, yeah, I want to know now. Mind you, I think a lot of the people who want to know their health IQ had good health IQ. Yes. Kind of one of these self-fulfilling things. Like, if you think your health IQ is bad, you really don't want to know. Um, but... Uh, you know, this brought really the health conscious to us and they took the quiz and when we built the data set out of it and the data showed that the health conscious actually died 41% less over the next three years than those who had scored poorly on the test. Like there was an actual significant mathematical difference. Mm. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's really interesting. I see, um, I do see a lot of companies use quizzes as a form of lead generation. So and and I I think it's really smart from like a pre qualification, like like people are essentially qualifying trying like they're qualifying themselves if they're a right fit, from a sales standpoint. Um. So so I'm just curious. Like a lot of those people like that were health conscious that pre qualified themselves, the conversion rates must have been out of this world, right? In terms of people signing up for your like like health insurance, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it ended up being an effective distribution channel. Um, we, since then, have also found other channels that are honestly even more effective. But uh, quizzes work, <laughs> right? They do. They're fun. People like taking them. Um, but we also use the quizzes not just as a lead generation tool. We use the quizzes really to build the data set, to really build the actuarial uh, statistical model that we use to price uh, and get cheaper rates for the health conscious. And so that's that's probably the biggest value uh, of the kind of the biggest legacy of the quiz is really that, look, we were just building a quiz. We had no idea that really the data coming out of that quiz would enable kind of, you know, we basically created the, the data set we created is one of the largest new mortality tables kind of created in the last hundred years um, of insurance and especially life insurance. And but we didn't even mean to do it. It just kind of happened by accident. Yeah, well, um, so talk to me around like traction so far with the company. You said that you're, you've learned a lot of lessons from your past two companies that you're taking to this one in terms of scaling it and growing it. Talk to me around that. I'm really curious. Yeah, so, you know, so the company um, has been growing quite a bit. It's We've probably done, I don't know what it is right at this moment, but I know a few weeks ago we looked at it and we had done seven billion dollars of coverage in the last like 25 months, and wow. um, and so you know the the scale is growing. Um, we're selling a lot of marathon runners and triathletes and vegans and vegetarians and and other health conscious people on on lower rate policies, and they're saving a lot of money and they're not they're happy about that. In terms of scaling the company, you know we now have. Uh, about 160 employees. We had about 60 employees a year ago, yeah. um, and we'll probably have about 300 a year from today. And so it's it's scaling at a very fast clip. Uh, but you know, a couple things I've done in this company, kind of from lessons from the past, and one of them is something kind of counterintuitive. Mm. Normally, as companies scale and there are 150 people going to 300, the CEO is barely involved in hiring unless it's an executive hire. Yes. And what I've done is kind of the opposite. I realized in my past companies that the day I walked away from hiring is the day I kind of felt things, the kind of like the, the quality threshold went down. 
And so in this company, we have like every single employee with a few exceptions, but I'd say 90%, 95% of employees I personally interview. And not just at the end, I kind of interview during their first on-site interview. Yes. So I get to see what's wow. coming through the door. I don't just kind of get a pre-filtered, you know, a curated uh, list to kind of choose from. And it takes enormous amounts of my time, but it's something that I learned from watching when, I, when Google was buying my company. Yes. It, we, we had finished the M&A on a Wednesday, all the docs. And I said, hey, why can't we close tomorrow? And they said, well, Larry hasn't signed off on your offer packets. And I said, oh, he signs off on every M&A offer packets? And they were like, no, no, he signs off on every new employee, period. Every wow. Thursday, all day. And I was like, that can't. And the company was like 12,000 people at the time, something like that. And this is 2010. And I thought, oh, my God, that's that's very non-scalable, right? Like every CEO, coach, every board member would be like, that's not scalable. You shouldn't be doing that. And I realized once I got inside that Google was filled with, you know, it, of any company I've seen at scale, it had kind of the largest number of really talented and smart people. And I said, you know what? This must be because of this check. Maybe it isn't the check. Maybe it's just the fact that everybody knows he's going to check. <laughs> it mm. makes everybody kind of hire better. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, who knows? But it turned out that I realized when you build a business, you really think about all the things that you want to build that will scale, but you should also think about the one or two things you want to have where you want control to be more important than scalability. And in the case of tech companies, it's a lot, you know, a lot of the time it's hiring. In the case of if you ran a furniture maker, you know, for, you know, cabinets in, in some other part of the country, maybe it's, you know, looking at, at how the front of the drawer is attached properly to the base, you know, to the box of the drawer, because that's when things kind of seem to fall apart. Or, you know, I don't, I don't know much about cabinets here, but, <laughs> but you, you know, you understand there's, there's probably a step that if you're going to QA anything, you should QA that step in the process. And um, that was something that I've carried to this day is, you know, we've, we've done a very different, there's some other hiring things that, uh, we've done, we actually don't use, we look at people's resumes, but we have them generate something called a brag sheet, which is a listing of every accomplishment they've ever had in their whole life. And uh, so if you won the spelling bee in the second grade, you put it on there. If you were captain of the track team, put it on there. If you were homecoming queen, put it on there. Like, I don't care what you want at. It can be anything. It can be, you know, you're, you were champion of, uh, you know, the track champion for your state. Like we just found that there's this, that winning is habitual and the people that win keep winning and resumes don't tell you much about how well somebody did at something. It tells you what they were responsible for. And there's so much success by association. Oh, I'm, I'm so good. I, I worked at Google and then I worked at Facebook and then I worked at Uber and then I worked at, you know, name your next kind of successful. And you're like, wow, this guy's great. I should totally hire him. But like, what did he do at those places? Like maybe the, the, it was such a rising tide that that person could have done nothing or they could have even been negative. And yet you're kind of attributing to them all the credit or, you know, oh, they went to Stanford. They must be smart. Okay, maybe. But all through life, a ton of us use success by association as our primary argument. And this brag sheet kind of gets around that. Mm, um, I love that. And, and so we we do it with every candidate. There's actually not a single person that's been hired here without a brag sheet. And we send them our brag sheets, just to be fair. We're like, look, 
here's the brag sheets of, you know, 15, 20 people in the company. Just A, to give you a sense of how to write it, and B, to, you know, kind of share um, our journey as well. And so, you know, those are kind of two hiring things I learned. Um, the other scaling thing I learned in from 2002 was there is nothing worse than a down round. When you grow your company, everybody thinks, oh my God, I got such a great valuation. Let me try to get a higher valuation. Let me try to, you know, take the least dilution possible. And I always tell entrepreneurs, uh, you know, gosh, if you've ever been through a down round, you know, you can also price something way too high. And you think it's all you. You think it's, you know, oh, look, I'm the one raising all this money. I said, it's not. It's maybe 20% you and your company. <laughs> well, maybe more than that. But it's, it's a significant part is the macro environment. There was a period after 9-11. There's a period after 2008 where even the best companies couldn't get funded. Right. And, and so I said, just, just know that valuations follow the intrinsic value of a company, but also go up and down with kind of the macro environment and don't fund your company, even at the perfect price or at the top of the current market, try to fund it actually at the bottom so that even if there is a correction, you don't have a down round because down rounds and even layoffs are just you don't realize how much wind is at your back when you're building a company. You know, the employees are working harder because things are going up and their spouses are telling them, Hey, go work harder. <laughs> you know, this is great. We're really on to something here. You know, the press is writing about you and saying how great your company is, which is making more people apply to want to join your company, which is making investors, you know, also excited and they want to invest in your company, which makes more competition there, which means higher valuations. And then as soon as you spin the other way, you have investors and board members that are suddenly feeling duped that they were the person who paid the highest price. You have employees that because of the layoffs you did are like, oh, you know, this is going nowhere. Maybe I should look for another job. You have their spouses going, yeah, this company is going nowhere. Why are you going to work early? Um, you have press that's writing about how awful your company is and you can do no right before you could do no wrong and now you can do no right. And so just you don't realize how much these things are successful because of the wind at your back. And when you end up with a down round, you just, you know, the, the wind shifts and you end up with a gale force wind at, at the front. And, it, and most entrepreneurs who have not been through several cycles don't realize, you know, how much wind is actually pushing them along. Hmm. I'm curious as well, like when it comes to um, all of your companies, you've always raised VC. Um, have you ever considered, like, uh, especially with your latest uh, company, Health IQ, perhaps self-funding? You know, I've always um, believed that uh, the types of businesses that can be built off self-funding are are usually more small businesses than large businesses. And you can fund it that way, and that's perfectly fine. But if something can be self-funded, then lots of people can self-fund their way into that market, which means it's a competitive market, which means it has low margins, which means it has low valuations. And that almost all of your big successful companies end up taking VC funding because the market window only opens for so long. And you kind of got to get as much gas and run through that window as fast as you can to kind of emerge at the right time in the right place. I know another form of this I always hear from people is, you know, I don't want to quit my job. I just want to work on an idea on the side. I'm like, yeah, but you're going to lose to the guy who quit his job. He's working on this every single minute of every single day. 
and you're working on it a few nights, a few weekends, maybe every night, every weekend, it's still not every single minute of every single day. And um, so I always say, you cannot build a business another way. It's just that some of the big market opportunities, particular in tech, just require you to move faster and beat the competition. And you need to gas and go to be able to do that. And it can be very hard to do that without uh, without raising venture money. Yeah, that makes sense. And one thing you said was um, you referred to us when you first started Health IQ. Um, does that mean that you're, you, you took the same founding team from like.com uh, when you exited to Google did, did a lot of your your team when you when you exited to Google and were acquired uh, start you know your old crew come and and help you build health IQ is that what you meant by that uh, some um, but not all so uh, my co-founder and COO Gora Suri was with me at like and also with me at Google um, and he joined uh, as well um, but Honestly, the team we put together for Health IQ were a group of people that all had gone through a health crisis themselves. That's what we wanted. We wanted a shared journey, a shared mission. So Gorov had his own health journey where he lost 40, 50 pounds, had had very severe migraines, had been in a hospital with spinal taps. That you know, He had a very similar difficult journey. Um, but then we found other co-founders who um, just shared shared the mission. So Brett, one of our co-founders, lost 120 pounds. He was an ex-Google engineer who had written the original backend code for Gmail and one day just knew he had to change his health. And so he ate the same thing for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for a year till he finished losing 120 wow. pounds. Uh, what was that thing? Is what you'd expect, salmon and broccoli, <laughs> effectively. <laughs> um, and... Um, at least for dinner, I don't know what he ate. I, I don't. I don't think he ate salmon every day because if you do that, I think you'll probably get mercury poisoning. But the um, uh, and then Chandra lost sixty pounds and and had such severe health issues before that that he had this kind of weird form of narcolepsy where he just fall asleep in different places. Um, and uh, you know, so we we had a group of people who had all had a similar journey. and that's the group that we kind of pulled together to do this because it it creates a different kind of bond. Um, you know, and I want to be respectful. Google had paid me a whole lot of money, um, partly for the technology and partly for the team. And, and I didn't want to, uh, kind of disrupt the value that, that they had sought. And in fact, most of our engineers and PhDs are, are still at Google, uh, to this day. Hmm. So what, like, uh, when it, when it comes to, I guess the, the founding team, does that mean like all future hires have to go through some sort of a health journey? No. I mean, actually, we just looked at the stat, but probably about, um, I think, 65% of our employees have gone through a personal journey. Um, and another, uh, what was it, kind of 15% didn't have their own journey, but there was a family journey. Yes. You know, something their family was close to them had something. And another 20% didn't have any journey necessarily, but just maybe grew up health conscious their whole life. They just had a parent or they just care about the mission. Um, it's, uh, you know, you can always hire people who want to join a startup that's raising $80 million and, and, you know, has Andreessen funding. But I try to not get kind of what I call the fair weather fans. People yes. who are like, Oh, let me look at Andreessen's homepage and see who they funded and let me apply to those companies. 
I'm like, yeah, that person's coming, but again, they're they're coming because they think you're going to be in the NBA finals. <laughs> and you want the ones that didn't know that were like, oh, I don't know, is this company like, actually, we didn't announce any of our financings until just very recently. So we announced the first 5 million, then we didn't announce anything. And then we announced all of the financings in between all the remaining 75 million all at once, even though it had come over three rounds. Yes. And in the meeting period, I didn't announce it on purpose. And people were like, why aren't you announcing your financing? And the new investors would be like, are we going to do PR around the fact that I invested? And I'm like, nope. And they're like, well, why not? And I said, because I want people to think we're a tiny little startup that's only raised $5 million and then they want to work here. And, and then I know they're not kind of fair weather fans. Now, eventually we realized that we did need to announce it all, partly because when people apply for life insurance, they have to call us up and they have to tell us their you know, income and they have to tell us their net worth and they have to give us their social security number. They tell us their health history. And sometimes when you see a website and you got to click on a link and then you talk to somebody on the phone and you're giving this information, you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, who are these people again? And, and a few good, um, credible news outlets pointing to you saying, yes, this is a real company, um, actually does, does help to make people more comfortable in doing business with you. So we, we finally did it, but we waited, honestly, years and just announced nothing. We did no PR for several years in there. Mm. Yeah. Well, um, so one thing I'm also curious around is, is do you think uh, that as founders, um, just like kind of you said, like your founding team, um, like we just forget about our health and we just focus on growing our companies because it's just an obsession um, and it's, it's yeah. easy to forget, <laughs> especially it's, it, this is a problem you think in, in San Fran, Silicon Valley? You know, I think it's gotten better uh, now than it was when I first started doing startups. But yeah, remember the startup person psychologically is the person who's willing to give up the present for the future. They're good at deferred gratification. On one hand, that makes them kind of say, hey, you know what? I don't have to get paid as much today because I want to get paid a whole lot more. I want to change the world later. But on the other hand, it leads them to, well, I'm going to defer taking care of my health too, right? I'm going to kick the can down the road and I'm just going to eat pizza every night. And, you know, the number of startups that you go to where they're serving pizza, some even health startups, and there's like, you know, I walk in and they're serving pizza. And you're like, what? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Uh, you're a health startup. And so, like, for example, here at Health IQ, you know, we have no soda, no granola bars, no candy bars, no sugar in the office. We have nuts and things like that. We allow you to keep it at your desk if you really want, but we don't, um, nothing can be in the common areas. And even at your desk, it's not terribly encouraged. And um, it's not even about your self control. It's that if it's a poor environment, everybody's going to get tempted. And, um, and so anyways, many startups, people don't, I didn't, I just said, Oh, whatever. I'll take, you know, I'm busy running a company. Leave me alone. Stop harassing me about my health. And, and finally one day I, I kind of had a scare that made me realize, you know what? I can't, I can't do this. I have to take care of this now. I have two young kids and, and this is, this is something I have to address today. Mm. Um, so what did you do? Like, how did you change your lifestyle? And, and is it easy? Would you recommend for founders 
like a lot of people listening to this interview will have just started their company. Just, you know, one thing that Steve Blank said to me, I said, if you want to build, I said to Steve Blank, I said, if you want to build an eight or a nine figure business, like what kind of hours are you expected to work? And he said, you got to be working 80 to a hundred hours. Like if you want to do stuff <laughs> like that. Um, and I'll never forget that. This is a while ago. I spoke to him as well. And I know, I think, you know, it's easy to forget, but it, it is also easy to make those adjustments like around just, you know, preparing your meals for the week, um, you know, booking in if you can afford it to have some sort of personal trainer or even just having a friend that you meet at the gym and you go there four or five times a week, you know, like it is only a slight adjustment, you know what I mean? Like it isn't, it isn't too much to ask. I, I, I am, I am trying to be quite health conscious. I, I have for, for, for most of my life, but yeah, I, I did uh -huh. let myself Good go. Good for you. I did let myself go <laughs> the past few years and I'm, I'm beyond boxing now and I've actually lost quite a bit of weight. So congrats. Yeah. No, no, that's, so yeah, I'm curious. You're, you're exactly the person, you know, we, 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 you're exactly the person we want to celebrate, um, who's really taking control of their health. And, and, um, obviously we're those same people, you know, this is a company I'm making for people like myself, um, and people like yourself. And so, um, but yeah, you know, it's look, number one thing I'll tell you, it's nutrition. Like you can't out exercise a bad diet no matter what. And it's not even that hard nutrition. Just cut out things with heavy added sugar. Don't drink a calorie, I call it. Any form of liquid calories try to avoid. If you really want to drink alcohol, do that, but don't drink too much. Um, but no, no juice, no milk. You know, as Arnold Schwarzenegger said when they interviewed him when he was, you know, competing for Mr. Olympia, they're like, Arnold, this is like the 70s, right? They're like, Arnold, are you, do you drink milk to get strong? He's like, milk is for babies. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just spikes the blood sugar. And so um, uh, don't drink a calorie, uh, don't eat high sugar stuff. And then the last one is just cut down on your, your bread and rice. Um, and you, I actually wore a continuous glucose meter to watch my blood sugar for a month. And you know what? There's no good bread, <laughs> even a whole wheat and whole grain. And I, you name it, every one of them spikes your blood sugar. Like I, I literally wore something that every, uh, you know, every minute took a sample of my blood sugar and just let me real time watch what was happening. And I, I mean, it was fascinating. Um, and I'm not diabetic. I just wanted to see kind of cause and effect, but, um, but anyway, so that's that first is diet, second exercise. But you know, it's there's a lot of science now that shows that high intensity interval training, you don't have to work out for a long time. You just have to work out really intensely, um, and if you do those sorts of workouts, it actually creates a metabolic change in your body, which makes you lose weight. And boxing obviously is that kind of a workout because um, it's like sprinting with your arms. You box, 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 and then you got to rest for a second, right? And so. You know, those are two things. And, and people say, oh, I don't have time to work out. And that's why I'm out of shape. And I'm like, you know, it takes like one second, not even one second more to order X versus Y. What does that have to do with time? <laughs> it doesn't at all. And these days with Uber Eats and all the things that can just deliver, you know, you can't even be like, I mean, this in the old days, you were like, oh, I'm stuck. And now I got to get in the car and I got to drive to a restaurant. And I got to get the food and I got to mm. come back. You know, these days, like you pull out your phone and like three clicks later, dinner's on the way. And, and people are like, oh, I don't have the money. And we make a lot of prioritization decisions in our lives. And so you can just decide, uh, you know, whether you want to eat healthy or you want to have a $1,000 iPhone. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, 
<laughs> it's kind of one of these things. You're like, I don't have anybody. I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> is that an iPhone X in your hand? Because <laughs> I think it is. So um, you just got to make it a priority uh, and and kind of that. The second thing, though, I have seen the entrepreneurs tend to be very good at self-control. And so once they decide to prioritize this, the number of entrepreneurs I know who take care of their health really well is actually quite high. They just don't put it on their radar. But once it's on their radar, they're usually really disciplined and, and usually even a bit maniacal. Like they end up becoming the triathletes and the, you know, the guys doing 50-mile races and 100-mile races. Like almost all the ones I know do that are, are entrepreneurs. And they just, they just have that much self-control and discipline. Mm, no. Because because I think entrepreneurship, uh, building a business is a competitive sport. And when you kind of focus and put your mind to something, you just attack it and, and, and you want to win, right? I, I don't know <laughs> if that's like the same for most people, but do, do you know what I mean? It's that. And, and I think that um, I think there's a high relationship between entrepreneurs and um, endurance athletes. Because in many startups, you don't have a competitor yet. It's kind of you against you. Um, and there's not somebody you can benchmark yourself against. There's not somebody you can look at. There's not a market share report coming out every month on how your sales did compared to somebody else. Like you're coming up with a whole new idea nobody's come up with. Uh, and maybe nobody else is even trying because it might not even be a good idea. And, and, and endurance, uh, endurance sports are similar. It's kind of man against mind or woman against mind. And entrepreneurship, I think, is more akin to endurance sports than it is to team sports, especially in the early days. Hmm. Yeah. Well, look, um, we have to work towards uh, wrapping up, Munjal. So a couple last questions. One thing um, that that kind of shouted out to me is is you said you've, you've started now three companies, Serial Entrepreneur. Um, have you failed? Have any of the companies fa- have you started any companies that have failed that you haven't mentioned? Not really. <laughs> I mean, there's a bunch I remember in college we tried to get going and it we kind of never got it even past the formation stage. Um, you know, I'm actually remember three or four times like trying to kind of like, okay, let's all start this company and quit our jobs or or work on it on the side and in college and we just never started. But um but no, but you know, I I would say there's been varying degrees. Our my first one was okay, but not the biggest hit in the world here. That's like.com turned out much better and, and health IQ is doing well. Um but you know, it's not uncommon, I think, when I see all the stories out there. You know, I've probably invested in thirty companies. I've been on the board of about ten. Just to kind of see like it's you know, I would say this to most entrepreneurs, everybody thinks if your startup fails then you probably will never be successful again. And I'd say it's like it's like any other sport. The more you do it, the better you get at it. And when you look at the core stories of a lot of people, their first startups kind of didn't go well. I was reading Elon Musk's thing, and he had his first company that wasn't all that great. And then eventually he started Zip2. And like everybody's got to kind of cut their teeth somewhere and 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 learn. and then And then later on, you kind of figure out the formula. But you've got a really good track record, man. Like you sold your first company to Alibaba, second to Google, now doing health health IQ. Um what what where I'm going with this is is that's a that's a pretty amazing track record. And on top of the fact that I don't know if this stat is true. I I would challenge this stat, how they say that ninety percent of businesses fail in the first five years or 
I, I, but so that's a pretty amazing track record. It's it's difficult to even exit a company. Like, you know what I mean? So why do you think that is? Like, what what is it about you as as a founder? Like, what are qualities? What like like what, what disciplines? What habits do you have that that, that helps you? Um, I would say the first thing is, I um, I mean, a the whole thing. You know, you got to be lucky, and everybody says that, but that's not very actionable. Wait, when you hear that, you're like, okay, what, what am I going to do with that? <laughs> like, go buy a rabbit's foot? Like, I mean, who knows? PETA will probably come after me these days for that. But the, um, uh, so the actionable things are things like, I believe you have to be more interested in being successful than in being right. That you always start with a thesis. And then the market tells you something about whether that thesis is right or wrong. And some people listen and some people don't. And it's a fine line because if you listen too much, you're going to be bobbing and weaving all over the place. But you got to figure out who to listen to and who to not. So if investors tell me something's a bad idea, honestly, I ignore it. But if customers tell me it's a bad idea, uh, you know, I, I definitely pay attention and try to change what we're doing. Um, Like.com eventually was a, a shopping engine that used c- computer vision to search inside of photographs looking at the color, shape, and pattern of, of a dress or a handbag to find similar things. But we started it out as a product to organize your personal photos. And while millions of people uploaded their photos, none of them came back. And I was looking at the statistics and I'm like, uh-oh, like we got to pivot. But then literally a couple of customers wrote in and said, you know, I don't really want to search my own photos that much, but if you could help me search the web and shop better, I would really be excited. And that gave us the idea for what it eventually became like. And, um, and so that was a case of, you know, kind of do it. Even Health IQ, we started out, We didn't even think we were going to make a quiz when we first raised that $5 million. We said we're going to do a FICO score for health using blood tests. (laughs) And then we wrote a quiz one day actually for new employees to take, and we put it out on our webpage. And then we looked one day and realized, oh, my God, like 10,000 people have taken this quiz, and we didn't even promote it. People must really like quizzes. And that changed our mind. And then we thought, oh, we'll get discounts in, in this kind of insurance and that kind, and eventually we found life insurance. So. Again, we were just more interested in being successful than in being right. Our, our thesis in both of the companies changed. So, I mean, you might say that, well, on the surface, it's like, hey, you know, these companies all went well. You know, a pivot is the death of, an, of kind of the original thesis or the original idea. You could say both Like and Health IQ actually had a version of itself that failed. Um, mm. But we just happened to kind of pivot the company while we still had enough cash. So that's the other key is everybody pivots their company when they're down to one month of cash. (laughs) Everybody (laughs) faces reality. (laughs) It's just too late. You got to do it when you have a lot of cash and you have enough money to kind of be able to make it make, you know, turn the ship in time. Um, So that, that would be something that I know um, I've spent a lot of time thinking about and doing. And, and I, I think the other one is just, uh, you know, focus a lot on product market fit. People go, oh, you know, we have a great team and we have a great this and we have a great um, investors. And I said, you know what? You can do almost everything wrong if you have really strong product market fit, kind of things will be forgiven and you'll still be successful. And if you do everything right, but you don't have good product market fit, you hire right, you get the right investors and you get the right operational team and all that, but the customers don't really want it. Like you can't fix that. And so I would really, really focus on that product market fit. We talk about all these other variables, but nothing matters more than that. 
Like and how do you know some... when you found it? When people are kind of beating the door to your, <laughs> to you, wanting whatever it is you're selling or whatever service you're providing, and and you kind of can't, you know, um, stop them. Like they're just coming and coming. And I'll, I'll give an example of a company that I'm on, in, on the board of in Germany um, called What's Broadcast. And the company originally started building a news app that would help you kind of get personalized news. Um, and then just through some circumstance, the CEO ended up getting a customer request for this idea of could could they deliver the news through WhatsApp? Because in Germany, 80% of people use WhatsApp or 90% is like very high penetration. And um, so he built that and then he needed a, a tool for the marketers, the, the news organizations to kind of manage, you know, who's subscribing and what news to send them and personalizing the news they get and this and that. So he built basically a marketing automation tool for marketing through WhatsApp from businesses to consumers. Yeah, wow. And, and then he pitched it. He said, you know, I pitched it then to 20 different businesses, like, would you want a tool like this? And he's like, in my whole career, I've never had so many yeses. And they weren't kind of like, yeah, that'd be great. They were like, oh my God, can I have this tomorrow? Mm. And he, I remember he came back to the board meeting and he's an old friend of mine. And, and, and he said, I think we should pivot the whole company to this. I've never, ever, ever seen such a response to any product concept that I pitched to, to customers. And we pivoted the whole company and it's, it's scaling and doing really well. Um, Deutsche Telekom and Red Bull and a bunch of these guys are customers of the company and it's been scaling and scaling and scaling because, you know, lots of companies want to manage their marketing automation, you know, for their customers on WhatsApp. And so, especially in, in other countries outside the U.S. And so that's, um, that's a great example of just, you know, he just got that fit and now everything's working because there's just true demand for the product. Because mm, it's not just generating sales. And that's uh, that's sometimes I think sometimes where people can get a little confused. If if you're generating sales and people are buying, some some founders would assume that you've hit product market fit. Yeah, <laughs> you're you're right. I mean, you you almost need if they're buying, but somebody else is selling the same thing, and you're just winning because you're spending more on marketing than they are. That's not a good answer. You have to have something different. Like if you look at Health IQ. We actually took that data, convinced carriers to give people special rates they can't get anywhere else. Like it's not the same retail rate you're going to get. If you are health conscious, we are going to get you a rate that you, that nobody else can match because they didn't have the data to figure out how to price it. And in insurance, you can't just lower your price. You got to know exactly how much to lower it. You can't lower it 20% and find out vegans only die 10%. You'll still lose your shirt. And so... Um, you know, they die 10% less and you're like, you'll still be in trouble. And so they, you need this kind of data set to do it. And so, uh, but the nice thing about life insurance is it's a commodity, meaning there are no features. You don't care if your doctor's in the network, you don't care if your prescription's there. You're just like, what's the coverage? What's the amount? Is the carrier going to be there to pay? And so if you're 10% cheaper for every marathoner, you don't get 10% of the marathoners. Like with enough marketing, you kind of get them all because why should any of them pay more? And so it's a very powerful value proposition, mostly because it's the data that allows for that discount. And so you just, you really got to get in there and really find that product market fit and make sure you have it. And sales alone is not enough. You're, you're very correct in that, I think. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, look, um, final question, because I know we're over time. Um, just one thing around the product market fit, like 
back in the nineties, did you know like to look for this when you were <laughs> like like building on delay <laughs> or like people never talked about this kind of stuff. Like the lean startup framework and methodology wasn't out then. Like like were you, were yeah. you that that concerned with customer development back then? Uh kinda sorta. I mean, <laughs> the way you just described it, you're like, back in the dark ages. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, I'm like, back when I was a wee little boy. Um, so, um, it's, it's a, uh, what we did was, it was actually pretty interesting when we were working on ideas, both for, for Andale and for Like.com, we actually kind of almost bid off multiple ideas against each other. I knew that if you just worked on one startup idea or one product, you would invariably convince yourself it was a good product. And and I remember when I started Andale, like I quit my job. I moved back in with my parents in San Jose. I was sleeping in my twin bed, looking up at my old poster in my room that had been there since I was in high school of, you know, a Lamborghini or some some stupid thing on the wall. And I remember thinking, oh, my God, I'm such a loser. <laughs> I'm back in my twin bed <laughs> in my parents' room working on this startup. And so I would have convinced myself that anything was a good idea. Like, I really would have. And so you cannot maintain enough objectivity except through this one mechanism. And this I've used every time I've tried to make decisions, which is that I kept multiple ideas alive. And I didn't try to answer the question of, is this a good idea? I tried to answer the question of, is this the best idea out of these three? And the other ideas kind of kept it honest. Because I'm like, well, I don't have to work on this one. I'll go work on this one. And so literally when I worked on the ideas for Andale, we had five ideas and every day we'd work on a different one and then cycle back the next week. And then we cut it down to three and every third day we'd work on the, you know, the other ones and just keep cycling and go deeper and deeper. And then we cut it down to two. And then we're like, okay, which of these two is the best idea to pursue rather than is X a good idea? Because you'll just convince yourself X is a good idea. Like, especially entrepreneurs, especially ones that are charismatic. Like, the problem is great charismatic entrepreneurs can create a reality distortion field, but it also envelops them. <laughs> like, they're in the middle of that field and they convince themselves. They can convince other people of almost anything. They can convince themselves of almost anything. And so I've always tried to use competing ideas as a way to kind of keep the intellectual honesty required to, to kind of, you know, see the truth, even when the situation's dire, even when you're burning through your savings, um, you know, sleeping in your, your old twin bed in your mom's house. Love it. Awesome, man. Well, look, um, we have to wrap there. I'm super mindful of your time. Um, where's the best place people can find out more about yourself and uh, your work, uh, in particular Health IQ? Uh, so, you know, just healthiq.com, you can read all about kind of what we've done and, and how we built the company. And, and, you know, you can actually read not only about my health story, if you go to the kind of about us section where all the employees are, but you can read almost every employee's story um, out there. And so that's, that's some of it. I, I recently wrote, um, there's an article in Fast Company about some of these counterintuitive ways to uh, kind of run a company. Um, and, and to scale a company that, that are kind of a little different, but, um, so there's, there's some stuff out there, uh, but you know, by and large, just, you can just email me if you like, and I'm always happy to help a fellow entrepreneur. It's something that I just, a lot of people helped me when I started out and had lunches with me and explained to me how things worked. And 
you know, I always try to make time to do that for, for you. Maybe there's one entrepreneur. I remember he wanted to meet with me really badly and I was in New York and I'm like, look, if you want to sit in my car on the way, you know, my taxi on the way to the airport at JFK, like you can have an hour of my time. And he's literally like, pick me up at this corner and this corner in Manhattan and I'll go with you. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, you know, I'm happy to help. It may not be the most convenient thing, but I'm happy to help any, any free moment I get. So it's just part of the kind of karma of entrepreneurship and, and paying it back. Yeah. Amazing, man. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. This is a great conversation and uh, yeah, I hope you have a great day. Really appreciate your time. Congratulations on all your success. Great. Thank you. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business, which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in depth on teaching a particular topic, and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.